0: Welcome, my dystoplicans. I'm Raul Guerrero, and you are listening to the Dystopian Republic. Today's story begins on the early morning of March 19th, 2006. The night looming over the Atlantic Ocean was still out, giving the crew that was overseeing a large airliner every reason to be on the alert for trouble. Jade slept with a face and had hair as sweet and innocent as an angel that has never encountered evil or experienced sin. Not far away, yet out of sight, a pair of headphones got Mavis lost in a world broadcasting in front of her seat. Though the wounds she sustained were From the picnic had healed, its tissue scarred her forehead to such a degree that no amount of time would ever return the affected skin to its original state. That world Mavis was in rode on a musically opulent saunter that hovered parallel to the beaches that hid in the rocks that were the mountains' edges. She smiled as the image moved with a leisure that showed a massif's angles, mossy specks, and rocky hues. The Odini colouring the surrounded hills lowered Mavis's happiness into a nap that couldn't wait for its adventure in West Shetland to start. In a hammock like valley on the landmasses inner east, the capital city of Kirlobo. Took the old Norse and tweaked it with more than a few additions. There was an unusually high number of commercial planes that have landed or were landing at Curlobo International Airport. When an attendant welcomed passengers to West Shetland, Mavis exited her dream with a whimper reminiscent of a puppy sitting out in the cold rain. She lined up with her class, stepped out of the plane, proceeded through the boarding bridge and into the receiving area. The walk relegated Mavis's nightmare to the back of her mind, replacing her excitement to its frontmost seat. Playing a board game with three of her classmates, their fun was interrupted, by breaking news that then-President Joby Sr. was taken to the hospital after suffering a heart attack. A medical director elaborated that an emergency call came in from the presidential chateau at 10.38 p.m. local time detailing that Bermelia's head of state was having severe chest pains and trouble breathing. He reported that when EMTs arrived, they found Joby semi-conscious on the floor of the circle office. The director said that the president was undergoing emergency care as he spoke and had nothing more to say. His comments failed to relax the shock most viewers were in, including the school faculty in the lounge. Many of them were hoping that Joby would pull through Fearing the power his vice president would assume if he didn't. Mavis continued her apologetic quest for the home space, but a boy's crying over his stitches took her back to when Crystal ran her nails across her forehead. Lydia and Nigella weren't much better, having learned of the news about Joby from their teacher just prior to their flight's arrival. Entering the lounge and seeing Mavis' cry, they looked left and saw Jade, then saw Josefa and Crystal to their right. That moment was the first time all six girls had been in one place since the picnic over three years ago. Mavis's sorrow pinkened into a sweltering ire which Crystal responded to with a stern remorselessness that desired to perform a second multi-prong slash across. Their charges for one another collided and snuck in a handful of hits, pushes, and pulls before Lydia, Nigella, Jade, and Josefa heaved them apart. Moderating her want, Crystal ran back with her hands up, showing that she wasn't interested in any further fighting. Mavis wildly shouted for Lydia and Nijela to let her go so that she could make her slasher suffer the pain she endured. Crystal made sure it was known that she regretted nothing and would do it again, prompting Jade to plead with her to stop talking and Josefa to tell her to keep the words coming. The teachers quelled the conflict by ordering their students to line up, threatening to send home anyone who didn't obey at a run. Nigella watched as Mavis quietly and tightly hugged Lydia, crying onto her long-sleeved soccer jersey. Josefa and Crystal subtly high-fived, shoulder-hugged, and kissed cheeks triumphantly. Jade looked at the other five with a shaky frown that was worried about what would happen next. The trip itself was split into two groups, the elementary school cohort that the six girls were a part of and the junior high one that included Lucia, Kalista, and Amelia. Those three saw the whole thing play out, having their eyes and thoughts set on crystal the heart of the trip was a camping spot not far from where West Shetland's mountains end and where its hills begin. That ground's massive circle of water at its center was the telltale quality that the cohorts had arrived in Amasidia Lake. Dressed in greens that showed off her body, Ramona welcomed her students to outdoor education." She was the principal of the Bromelian Federal Academy, a magnet school that catered to the children of current and former politicians. Established by Joby in January 2005, it was his way of thanking Rounds I for conceding after their 2004 election battle was decided in a 3-1 vote by the Bahia del Mercado Supreme Court. Both presidents aspired to create an education track that could compete directly with the Ivy League. Winning the 1972 Miss Brumelia beauty pageant, Ramona used her winnings to pay her way through college and graduate school. She met, fell in love with, and married Xander Sr. in the fall of 1977, relying on his connections to fast-track her career in education, prior to the academy, Ramona was the principal of West Hills Middle School for eight years. She worked for the Yellow Crosses Education Front from January 1985 to October 1995. Hard work that Gregorio Junior's fall and Bromelia's redemocratization nearly ruined. Ramona proposed that the trip. Begin with a tour of the campground manifesting in numerous hikes occurring at once, but in different directions. Splitting the cohorts off into small groups, she put the six girls together with the older trio and had Xander Jr. supervise them, having confidence that his intolerance for BS would keep them in line. Ramona's son volunteered to be a counselor as a way to fulfill his community service requirement for his college's fraternity. Although Jade found Xander to be very cold, she was at ease, knowing that he won't let Mavis or Crystal try anything. Hearing him address Ramona as his mom, Crystal's suspicion went from negligible to considerable. Xander's voice may not have been the deepest but its unfeeling wave tickled Lydia in the jealous cheeks like a bird's feather. He asked if anyone needed to use the bathroom, getting Lucia, Calista, and Amelia to answer with an immediate pee-pee dancing yes. Told by Xander to make their break efficient, the trio assured him that they will, walking with purpose and urgency. Once in the girls' room, Lucia looked out and around for rubberneckers, locking the door after seeing none. Galista pulled open a diaper-changing station and plopped her purse onto it as Amelia did her business in the stall. Jade fought nothing of the bathroom break and neither did Crystal as Xander, Lydia, Mavis, and Nijilla were the targets of her suspicion. Faintly hearing three toilets flush simultaneously Josefa watched the trio prance out as completely different people. During the bus ride, Lucia was as quick to pinch others as a hermit crab after having its shell cracked and pulled off its body. The voice Calista had when addressing adults and other kids had the rudeness of a ripped-off customer. Amelia sat with an aloofness that was whispery in sound and viewed interacting as a necessary evil. Exiting the bathroom, Lucia had a nature that was as easy-going as a person who's left the material world and forgiven all who've dealt harm. Callista’s voice had the calmness of a stagnant pool that valued everything it possessed regardless of cost. Amelia moved with an excited affableness that danced like a sunflower on a cloudless day. She and Callista followed Lucia's lead, skipping around the six girls and an amused Xander while singing about the grass growing all around. Their circling hop annoyed Lydia, Mavis, and Nijela, and made Josefa uncomfortable, but it brought a grin out of Jade and stirred Crystal into chanting and moving along. The song's end marked the beginning of the hike around Amesidia Lake and something transformative. Right behind Xander, Lucia asked him why he wanted to be a counselor when he's from a family that could purchase the camp as easily as she's able to buy a snow cone from the ice cream truck. He called her question a great one, answering that he loved working with children as his heart was that of a kid her age. Outside the radar of Xander's lecture on the edible plants along the trail, Mavis was searching for a concealed area to carry out her reprisal, keeping Crystal on toes quicker than a squirrel staring at a hungry bobcat. Also on a hair trigger, Josefa was looking for a sight worthy of a group photo, finding it at a hilltop break from the forest. That place was a silver statue that made Kira out to be an explorer of excellence and held onto a tree from in front. A museum-like display and large drawer stood at a height from her feet to just below her belt line antiques inside the glass and on top of the stone. Noticing the discomfort shaking Lucia, Callista, and Amelia, Crystal asked Xander if she and the trio could opt out of the group photo. Josefa’s eyes widened to little golf balls, dreading the right act he was about to read to her friend. But incredibly, Xander growled a stressed sigh and told Crystal and the trio to wander around and see if he cared. His rude answer made Jade's hatred for him grow from a pebble to a boulder, but it assured Josefa that nothing bad was gonna happen to Crystal. Lydia punched down the air beside her and Nijilla was itching to kick Xander in the shin. As for Mavis, she inconsolably shivered as her chance at revenge mockingly frolicked away. Three minutes were all it took for the frolic's honey to run out and its moon to set. Now roaming at a placid ramble, Lucia asked Crystal what her beef was with Mavis. The answer she received was hesitation, silent stuttering, and very hard thinking, giving Calista the impression that Crystal had things to hide. Although Amelia didn't have her friend's suspicion, she was a tad flustered over the delay to answer a question, she'd answer forthwith. Pressed by Lucia, Crystal answered that Mavis and her two friends have been making her life a living hell for years, wiping Callista's conjecture away and erasing Amelia's every wonder. Back at the landmark, Xander flashed a photo of himself Jade, Josefa, Lydia, Mavis, and Nigella striking prideful poses with its statue, display, and drawer. He reminded them that tradition dictated that all who touch the site must identify themselves, the menage they're a part of, its wealth, power, and status, or lack thereof. Going first, Xander identified himself as the son of a real estate mogul and model turned elite principal, as well as the blessed godson of a chemical magnate. Jade told the statue that she was a daughter of federal assemblyman Roosevelt Sr., irritating Lydia into staring her down and calling herself the only child of then vice president Romulo. Mavis, Nigella, and Josefa were about to join in on the identifying when Xander received a call from one of the emergency phones. Shocked to hear Lucia in a distraught way on the other line, he raised his voice to get her to slow down and compose herself. She quiveringly told him that Crystal had run off on her own and never returned, Xander asked Lucia if her parents ever taught her not to wander into places she's unfamiliar with. That scared Amelia into telling him that her parents will beat her if he gets her in trouble. Xander exclaimed to her that she should have fought about that before frolicking off, peeving Kalista into telling him that she and the other three were his responsibility. She spelled out to him That if the trio gets burned, he too will feel the scornful flame. Faced with a hellish reprimand, Xander put on tight headphones, took out a thermometer gun, and fired whining frequencies that acutely ached, Jade, Josefa, Lydia, Mavis, and Nigella senseless. Waking up in an infirmary, hours later, the girls' memories from when the hike started to the minute before the trio and Crystal left the group had been erased. Sharing a room and about to engage in a two-on-three shouting match, a news bulletin informed them that Crystal had been found motionless some way down a hill. Jade and Josefa's hearts broke like glass, and their wails exploded out of their mouths. About to utterly lose it, they saw Lydia Mavis and Nigella in an incredulity every bit as profound. Yelling her voice away, Jade asked her rivals if Crystal dying was their goal all along, accusing them of setting her friend up to be attacked. Lydia shouted that as much as she hated Crystal, she would have never, ever go so far as to hurt her so heinously. Witnessing Nigella agree, Josefa knew Mavis was the one who really wanted revenge, telling her to eat up the catharsis while it was hot. Jade told Lydia and her lackeys that the truth would come out if it hadn't already. Josefa wished her rivals the best of luck, pointing to the cuffs, keeping them in their beds. When the five were clear to go, Jade and Roosevelt embraced while Josefa and an obviously intoxicated Aleja had an almost unheard of moment of closeness. Escorted by nurses, Lydia, Mavis, and Nigella staggered out like small children walking into a freezer after taking a cold shower. Their shaky gates fell into an obstreperous, bawling madness when half a dozen cops arrested them. From a hotel balcony down the street, the trio gleefully watched Lydia, Mavis, and Ejella be taken off to Juvie. Since Crystal's attempted murder was under investigation, Lucia, Callista, and Amelia had to wait for the police to come and question them. Lucia was of good cheer over the legal clear she was hours from being in, but Callista couldn't stop sweating and trembling or take her eyes off the live coverage of the attack. Standing on the tub with nothing on, Amelia covered her mouth and part of her nose. Her self-reproach battered her more gratingly than the shower's sandy spray, shaming her into wishing she never participated. Imagining what Crystal expressed, the guilt in Amelia fogged up her brain so densely that she was desperate to depress it. Turning off the shower and wearing a towel, she looked at herself while drinking cough syrup, feeling the dextromethorphan depress away her anxieties and worries. Her patience running thin, Lucia shaved a key, unlocked the door, and found Amelia discombobulated, holding onto the toilet and laughing for no reason. She was befuddled over how her friend could be hammered without taking a single alcoholic sip, but then, she saw the two-thirds full cough-syrup bottle that rattled the metal wires off of Lucia's cage, unleashing a scorn that grabbed, shook, and slapped Amelia around for getting herself messed up on such an off-putting sludge. Concomitantly at Amicidia Lake, Xander sat on the back porch of a cabin Ramona got to live in by virtue of being the principal His swigs of hard cider did little to relax his mousy sit as his talk with Xander Sr. over the phone took a tetchy turn. Xander Jr. asked his father if he realized that he just threw three of their own under the bus. Xander Sr. answered that what his son called throwing under, he called having them take one now and get way more later. Xander Jr. reminded him that the Becunias Daruas and Infantes had members whose ranks were at the top of Joby's administration. Xander Sr. pointed out that their influences were strong but weaker than his was, telling his son that he and every Brumelian will see that play out in the coming weeks and months. Amelia's screams and Lucia's grunts moved Calista's focus away from the looping news, fretting her into breaking her friends up but before anyone could utter a reaction, a special report broke into the broadcast announcing that Joby had died of heart failure. His 1938 and 2006 years of birth and death were on display, dropping the trio down a nerf-bundled chasm that was awfully downcast. Knowing that Joby's end would be Romulo's rise, Lucia nibbled on her fingernails. Kalista bellowed off her nut and Amelia sobbed in her cough syrup. Seeing their numbers about to be up, they did a runner that had their families and police enter an empty hotel room. At the hospital where Lydia, Mavis, and Nigella were arrested, a teary-eyed Rhonda was down to her box's last tissue. Watching a mangled crystal fight to live, she vowed to make her attackers pay and no outcome would change that. Rhonda found some strength in Joby's passing, viewing the demise of Grimsby Senior's godson as well deserved. But for all the brawn her spine garnered, she knew it would all be put to use now that Romulo was Bromelia's pinnacle mover and shaker. Rhonda expected very little justice for her daughter when Joby was alive but now she's ready to receive none whatsoever. About to call Crystal as good as dead, she felt dozens of pounds fall off her ribcage when her daughter opened her eyes with her awareness and cognition intact. They had an overlong moment that lavered their hearts in a syrup thicker than car sludge. Rhonda asked Crystal what happened to her and who was at fault, resulting in her daughter answering with a story that took a touchy situation nuclear. Lucia helped Calista and Amelia get halfway across an instance of West Shetland's hilly grass spilling over to its mountainous rocks. She felt her friends go partly limp, kneeling to catch her breath while helping them get theirs back. Lucia sensed the anxiety and apprehension panting out of Calista and Amelia, respectively. She told her friends that everything will be okay and that what they did was no big deal. Callista and Amelia harshly snapped out of their doldrums, giving their friend the most scorned looks she had ever seen. Lucia froze like she had stumbled upon a pair of soul-hungry ghosts coming down with an urge to evacuate her bowels and bladder. Slapping her mouth's taste away, Amelia said that the attack on Crystal was entirely her idea and a deed she wouldn't have thought of committing. Kalista asked sweet, benevolent little Lucia where her smile and pride had gone, answering that it went the way that they'll go from Mia, Sonia, and Nova's lives. She accused her of ensuring the decline and fall of thick bloodlines Asking her what they stood to gain from a revenge Mavis didn't even want. Amelia yelled that Lucia deserved to be the one beaten and cut into a coma and not crystal. Kalista couldn't sympathize with her more, seeing a red that was approximately across from violet. Popping a cranial spring, Lucia gripped Kalista and Amelia by their napes, cramming their bones cartilage, veins, and nerves into a space the size of half a hockey puck. She told them that what she was gonna say would only be said once, making their eyeballs, brains, and jaws feel like they were being pushed out. Lucia told Callista and Amelia that it was their duty as her friends to stand by her as strongly as she had their backs. She pressed their faces into the muddy grass and called them vile filth who deserve to feel crystal suffering. Lucia said that Callista and Amelia were wrong to think that their Buenafe and Fragoso surnames gave them a license to act as they please or associate with whoever they wanted. She yelled about her ability to fare well without her friends' help and how they would be dead or confined if she ever left their lives the power Lucia had over Calista and Amelia was the same control her parents had over their mothers and fathers. They saw that dynamic play out at work, home, in public, photos, audiotapes, and on video. Lucia identified herself as the captain and designated Calista and Amelia as her boat's machinery and structure. She likened the mastery she gained over her friends to a prized possession whose owner did everything conceivable to protect at all costs. Lucia released her grips and hugged Callista and Amelia with a clench harder than a hex machine bolt. She breathed with edges rougher than a rocky road that stretched and angled to a small violin, glumming her friends into trying to be back in her good graces. Lucia reacted to that try by rubbing the mud off Callista and Amelia's faces with wet wipes, absorbing the mud, drying their faces within seconds, and overwhelming their sinuses with a strong linen scent that smoothed out their rough pains and sharp chagrin. The trio rose to their feet and marched to the cliff that introduced them to the vertiginous drop to the undisturbed beach fifty feet below. They hung back from climbing down because of the blinding, needle-sharp branches, leaves, and rocks that infested the slope. Three gunshots narrowly missed the trio's feet, petrifying them into almost jumping off the cliff, which slammed them prone on the grass. They speedily looked up and quaked when they saw a furious Rhonda aim twin pistols at them. She gleefully ran her tongue across her bottom lip, not blaming them for their cowering as Crystal told her everything. Realizing that Dave been caught, the trio felt their sweat solidify into a frost wanting to throw up and scream until their voice boxes expired. Lucia was upset at Xander Jr. for lying to her about getting away with the would-be murder. Callista imagined her trophies, ribbons, and certificates being amassed for a douse in lighter fluid. Amelia knew her insubstantial behind wouldn't fare well being among the worst people in society. Rhonda asked Lucia if she sincerely thought that a rotten pig like Xander Jr. would care for her. She was curious to know if Callista ever thought about her accomplishments as she was brutalizing Crystal. Smelling Amelia's carcerophobia, Rhonda ordered her to quit sweating it out as she wasn't the type to let police do all the disciplining. It had been close to a decade Since she surrendered her faith in law enforcement and the judicial process, Rhonda believed that if she turned the trio in, those girls would only spend a single night behind bars and be free to go the next day. She instructed the girls to get up and face the cliff, saying that it was time they tasted their own medicine. A policeman was carefully driving along a winding road that was hundreds of feet below the valley at a residential speed when three gunshots sprung him off his seat. He notified dispatch that the juvenile attempted murder suspects may have struck again. All available cops across West Shetland rushed for the valley quicker than half a flash. Upon reaching where the bullets were fired, the officers yelled for the trio to immediately get on the ground with their hands up. What they encountered was Rhonda facing away from them, standing tall with her legs spread out and fists clenched. Officers then filled their commands for her to surrender with every expletive that didn't mince. Rhonda tensed up the rest of her body like an arm flex, inhaled her shoulders and arms up, and exhaled them down. Her repeated breaths shook the nerves of the officers whose orders to give up were increasingly apprehensive. The warning shots that missed Rhonda by inches prompted her to face her gun pointers, startling them with her appearance. Her clothes and skin had few in the way of rips, tears, or stretches, and her skin had no hairs out of place or any cells injured, however, freshly shed and drying blood mixed in with mud and smeared grass, fouling up her cleanliness and how she smelled. Topping it all off, the state of Rhonda's face made her smiling stare look highly wolfish. She fearlessly lied on her stomach and put her arms behind her back, letting officers handcuff her and threaten to shoot her if she resisted, not worried about her coming incarceration, Rhonda's grin persisted even as the cops told her off all the way to jail. Their attention now turned to finding Lucia, Callista, and Amelia. The cops looked down the slope and were grossed out by the condition they found the girls in. They tried real hard not to break down and cry, or violently vomit at the hideous beatings and subsequent tumbles down the girls endured. The cops declared an emergency situation, pushing medics to go a mile faster than the fullest pelt to extract them from the slope and airlift them to the hospital. The physicians treating the girls thought it was unreal that they would be treating three more attempted murder victims after going to hell and back, trying to save crystal. Every government building in Bromelia had its flags at half-mast, symbolizing the mourning said nation was in over Joby's passing. Inside the vice-presidential manor, Romulo seemingly looked down and had a hand on his right hip, despite being superbly dressed and polished for a presidential swearing-in. He cautiously ran to the kitchen after he heard a whine bottle break and shatter, finding Everill intoxicated and whimpering with a face full of Pinot Grigio. Romola wanted to hug, lift, and tuck her into bed, but didn't out of concern that he'd ruin his suit. He made Everill a cup of coffee she used to swallow one of her carbon capsules, helping her get back a significant portion of her alertness. She felt responsible for the durance Lydia was unlikely to return from, maddening Romolo into telling her to never say that again. He told Everell that neither of them were at fault for what went down in West Shetland, calling whatever suggestion that either he or she had a thing to do with what their daughter did, demonstrably false." Let known by his wife that leaving Lydia to rot amounted to a betrayal. Romulo's eyes shut as his tension headache sickened him. His cranial fog cleared out when Xander Sr. called to wish him the best of luck as Bermelia's new president. That was when Romulo stood firmly with a face that was strength in its most ruthless form, empowering Everell to erase her dreary inebriation with one look up. A short while later, Romolo was sworn in before an audience of millions across Bermelia and around the world. Wiped out by a whole night of partying, Eldon Sr., Loreto, and their colleagues drunkenly sang their new president's praises. But Roosevelt buried his shame into his palms, feeling the ceremony's nefarious, mocking laughs. His wife, Laura, pulled him onto her arms, dispiriting Jade, Ophelia, and their brothers, Roosevelt Jr., Napier, and Maynard, into their plaintive embrace. Livingston Sr. and his lifelong neighbor, Blackburn Cardona Sr., watched Romulo take the podium and deliver the Merlot family his sincerest condolences, most Bermelians weren't all that prepared for the speech their new leader was about to give. Romulo declared that he would end the nation's years and years of instability and upheaval, calling himself the ideal man who could break the cycle. He called Sinclair, Rounds the first and Joby Sr., three corners of the same disgraceful and degenerate triangle. That forced gasps out of the Bermelians who leaned right and those who sat to the left of the political spectrum's center line. Their differing opinions met at a shared belief that Romulo didn't wear the mask of unity and compromise that his three predecessors wore. Xander Jr. and Ramona watched their new president finish his speech on a harsh note that repeated his vow to bring law, order, and respect back to Bromelia. As Romolo turned and walked away, one of his staffers thanked the press after telling them that there would be no interviews or questions. Having lawyers nearby, Ramona and Xander Jr. were a little less apprehensive about where they stood legally. Mere hours passed before Romolo's first situation as president would come about. The attempted murder of Crystal, the arrests of Lydia Mavis and Nigella, Lucia, Callista, and Amelia being identified as the attackers, Ronda's attempts to murder said assailants and the charges that Xander Jr. knew he'd face, and as fate would have it, that messy tangle would have defining implications for the presidency that was to follow. And that was for and a frolic. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to the story I just gave. Share this show with everyone you know. Make sure they share it with everyone they know. Check out my website at www.rss.com/podcasts/the-dystopian-republic. Send me your respectful questions and constructive feedback at Raúl Guerrero Jr. ninety five at gmail.com, and lastly, support the show via my PayPal at paypal.com slash paypalme slash Raul Guerrero Jr. On that note, I'm Raul Guerrero, and come again for another gripping, thoughtful, and sinister episode of The Dystopian Republic.